But Christopher, because of his personal testimony, he has an understanding heart and a desire to minister to those working through the issues of sexuality and to those living with HIV. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College Graduate School with a master's in biblical exegesis. And he is currently pursuing a doctorate of ministry at Bethel Seminary. He also teaches at Moody, and he has a speaking ministry that is both national and international. I am very excited to have him today, so please welcome Christopher. Thanks, Amy. I know you guys are all here because of the treats, so um, you won't offend me if you go up and get more cookies. Um, but this issue of homosexuality is very relevant and uh, for our day. I mean, this is an election year, and we're just going to be hearing more and more about this. Uh, but I think it's important for us to kind of, um, you know, look at, you know, the different issues that that are there, and, and as Christians what we're going to talk about today or this afternoon, this first hour is what the Bible says about homosexuality. And then the second hour, if you're able to stay or if you're uh, able to come, we're going to talk about what does science have to say about um, nature, nurture? Are you born this way? Is it a choice? So we're going to look at some of the science, some of the studies that have been done on this issue, uh, but also ultimately what does theology have to say? Um, but if you're here this afternoon um, to hear this talk, I'm, I'm hoping that you will also come this evening because that's kind of, the evening talk is more my heart. Uh, these are good, these are important, they're kind of facts, uh, what does the Bible say, etc., what does science say, but ultimately, um, I, I think when we talk about it like this, it's kind of just still this, this issue out there. But this evening, where it's more about how do we respond, how do we um, act on this issue, and how do we reach out and, and love our gay neighbors and gay loved ones, uh, people within the, the Christian community that might be wrestling through these issues. So that's more my heart, and so hopefully you'll, you'll come for that and, and, and really hear uh, my burden for this whole topic. Uh, so please come this, this evening. Um, Amy did mention about the book, and I think I mentioned during chapel, uh, we'll do a little giveaway thingy, so if you follow me on Twitter and, and you know, tweet something or post something on my wall there, uh, we'll do a giveaway, I think, this evening. Um, but texts and hermeneutics, I, does everyone have a handout? If you don't, uh, other people might be handing it out. If you want to, I have... A digital copy of my notes here. You can just type in that shortened URL or write that down, or um, you can scan the QR code. If you don't know what that is, then um, I can't help you. Uh, so, texts and hermeneutics. Um, you know, again, I think it, it is good for us to know what the Bible has to say about homosexuality, but more importantly, it, it really is, I don't want you to think that what I'm presenting this, this hour is going to be something that you guys can kind of put in your ammo belt as more ammunition to kind of tell those people how wrong they, they are. Okay, so do not hear me in that way. This is not stuff that you can take and then be able to debate better with people, because that is not my intention. What I hope to say is because oftentimes people are saying, well, there is really, it's unclear what the Bible has to say. So I, I, I want to say that this is kind of for us, those of us who kind of hold to the traditional view of sexuality or some of you that might not, but um, I'm not presenting this as to say that you're wrong. I'm just saying that uh, from my careful study of Greek and Hebrew um, after coming to Christ, you know, being at Moody, going to Wheaton um, and studying exegesis, you know, having four years of Greek, four years of Hebrew, you know, a lot of people say, well, the Bible is really unclear on the issue of sexuality. And, and as I just read it in the original Greek and Hebrew, just was struck with the fact that there really isn't that much unclarity, or is that even a word? There's not that much uh, things that aren't unclear. 
So I wanted to talk about that uh, and, and show some of the assertions that are made that uh, the Bible affirms homosexuality or doesn't condemn it and just respond to it. But I, I want you to be careful to see that I'm not doing this so you can kind of be able to debate better with other people because ultimately our desire is to draw people to Christ and you can't really do that by debating with someone, right? I mean, ha- I've yet to meet anyone who came to Christ through, uh, you know, losing an argument or, you know, getting into a debate and, and then, oh, oh, I guess you're right. You know, so that's, that's just not how it happens. So ultimately it is the gospel and, and that's going to be more kind of my emphasis this, this evening. So texts and hermeneutics... Um, Hermeneutics is a good place to start because though we may look at all these different texts that touch on hermeneutics, there's six that specifically mention homosexuality, three in the old, three in the new, um, and we're going to talk about those, but also some general themes that we see throughout Scripture. But ultimately, what is our hermeneutics will greatly impact how we view Scripture. So I think that's a great place to start. Uh, I hold to a traditional view of sexuality, um, and those who are evangelical and hold to Scripture as being inerrant, infallible, uh, we have kind of this prioritization of how we look at Scripture, our hermeneutics. And, you know, it, it would go like this. We see, see Scripture as very, very important, as most important. That's the top priority uh, we see it as God's word. Uh, it's not just something written by man. It's written by man and God, the Holy Spirit, moving through the biblical writers to record the word of God. It's the final word on faith and ethics, especially sexual ethics. And then underneath that, reason and science. Not that reason and science would somehow contradict Scripture, but if God's word is God's word, and if it is truth, then, then it will agree with all other truth, including reason and science, and underneath that experience. So it's not that our experience interprets Scripture, but Scripture helps us interpret our own experiences. On the other hand, what I found for many people who hold to um, an affirming view of homosexuality, uh, oftentimes called a progressive view of homosexuality, you know, I'll, I just call it a revisionist view of homosexuality, what I found, find often is an inverted hermeneutics. Seldom do I find someone who has moved from a traditional view of sexuality and then moved to a revisionist view of homosexuality whose story didn't begin like this. I have a friend who's gay, or I have a brother or sister who's gay, or I have a loved one who's gay, and they love Jesus. And so how could homosexuality be wrong? So what we find is that experience, in a sense, kind of trumps everything else. It's our experience, then, that kind of reinterprets Scripture. And then underneath that, science and reason, and people say, well, you know, the biblical writers, they didn't really understand sexuality as we know of it today, and we just know so much more about sexuality than we did back then. So, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in the second hour uh, and then last, you know, Scripture. That Scripture is important, uh, but, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of things that we don't hold to today. There's some things that aren't necessarily true, and there's some errors. So, uh, you know, we find where there's, it's this inverted hermeneutics. So let's jump into the different texts that touch on homosexuality. Uh, the first one, and we're going to go from the beginning of the Bible to the end, uh, starts with Genesis, Genesis 19, and that's the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, passage where God destroyed Sodom. And so kind of the, uh, the discussion is what was the sin of Sodom? Why did God destroy Sodom? Those who hold to a revisionist view say, well, you know, the sin of Sodom it wasn't homosexuality, but it was the sin of gang rape. Gang rape uh, was kind of common in the ancient Near Eastern world where people, uh, when a people group, a nation would uh, invade and destroy another nation, they will take their men and degrade them by raping them in a way not as a kind of sexual thing, but to show I'm in domination over you, and uh, this is my way of showing that I'm in control over you and humiliating you and to show that I have power over you. So people who hold a revisionist view say that is what is being condemned here, but not homosexuality as we know of it today, the loving monogamous, loving uh, adult consensual 
homosexual relationships as we know of it today. So that's one interpretation. Another way to look at Genesis 19, uh, who holds to a revisionist view, is say it's not the sin of homosexuality, but it's the sin of inhospitality. Inhospitality. And people who hold to this revisionist view say, well, you know, nowhere in the rest of Scripture, whenever Sodom is mentioned, is, uh, is it mentioned directly with homosexuality. Sodom is mentioned 27 times outside of Genesis, and not once is it, is it mentioned in correlation with homosexuality. And people will often go specifically to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 where it says, uh, you know, that this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She, was, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So people say, that does not sound like homosexuality. That sounds like inhospitality. And we believe that Ezekiel is a prophet, and he was right. So we think that the sin of Sodom, according to Ezekiel, was not homosexuality, but the sin of Sodom was in hospitality, according to those who hold to a revisionist view. Also, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, if anyone will not welcome you, in other words, show you hospitality, shake the dust off their feet, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So it must have been in hospitality and not homosexuality. In addition, people will go to the Hebrew and specifically in Genesis 19.5, where it says, uh, the men of Sodom banged on the door of Lot and asked Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. And that word, to have sex with them, literally in the Hebrew is to know or yada. Anyone taking Hebrew here? Does that, is there a biblical language? Okay, good. One person. Uh, so, shalom. Uh, but but the, the Hebrew word for, uh, that's used here in Genesis 19.5 for to have sex with is literally, it, it means to know. The Hebrew word yada. And people say, well, you know, the majority of the times that yada translated in the Old Testament, um, it's translated as, um, I guess the Hebrew is not coming up, um, it's translated as, to get acquainted with, uh, not to have sex. It occurs 943 times in the Old Testament, and only 15 times it is translated as to have sex with. All other times it's translated as to get acquainted with. So the argument goes, you know, if the majority of the times it's translated as to get acquainted with, why in the world would we translate it this time as to have sex with? Okay, some of you guys might be moving in your seats, or um, our Old Testament professor might be moving in his seat, but I will be uh, respond, bus, responding to that in just a second. Another kind of argument under, uh, to, to people use to support this argument for inhospitality is they say, well, Lot, um, he was going against ancient Near Eastern cultural norms, because what was the norm back then was for the elders of the city to show hospitality to, uh, to people that were visitors and to strangers. And yet Lot, he wasn't one of the elders. He was just a sojourner. So Lot wasn't supposed to be the one that was, show, that, that was supposed to show hospitality to, um, and so he was supposed to be the elders. Or he was supposed to ask permission from the elders first. Another third, and this is a little less, um, common that you hear about. Sometimes people will say, well, really the sin was not homosexuality, but it was the sin of having sex with angels. From uh, Jude 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So people say the sin was having, uh, threatening to have sex with angels. So how do we respond to that, those who hold to a traditional view of sexuality? Well, I think there's a little bit of merit to the fact that Sodom was guilty of threatening gang rape, but not only were they guilty of threatening gang rape, but I think that they were also guilty of threatening to have homosexual sex with these strangers. 
So not only were the men of Sodom guilty of threatening rape, but they are also guilty of threatening adultery and threatening fornication and homosexual sex. Um, And besides, if gang rape was truly the problem, then why in the world would Lot have offered his daughters? Right? You know, that same context. You know, Lot says, don't do this wicked thing, but here, take my daughters. I mean, you know, we would think that is crazy. Uh, You know, that's not really a a good alternative. Uh, But he does say, what is this wicked thing? And, And besides, the Old Testament uses a different word for rape doesn't use the word to know as rape. N- to know has often been used to have sex with, but not rape. The old uh, Hebrew uses words like to seize or to force to refer to rape. How about the, the argument of uh, Sodom was guilty of inhospitality? Again, there is a little bit of merit to that. Yes, they were guilty of inhospitality, but they were guilty of inhospitality and homosexuality. The, the prophet Ezekiel, as he wrote in chapter 16, where it says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Well, you know, one thing that I teach my uh, students at Moody is that we always have to read things in context. Have you guys ever heard uh, the phrase, context is king? Anyone hear that before? Okay, not only is context king, I'd like to add to that, context is not only king, but it's queen, it's jack, it's ace, it's, I mean, the whole deck of cards. It is everything. We cannot read any text out of context because when we do, it's just pretext. So we have to read things in context. And when you do, I think it will help us in having a proper interpretation. And when we look at this passage, Ezekiel chapter 16, we will read it in context and find the verse right after it. And actually, among in that little pericope, in that paragraph, oftentimes the word abomination is mentioned. In verse 50, it says, Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. The word abomination is the Hebrew word toavah, uh, and that word toavah comes right from Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, which we're going to look at, look at in just a second. So Ezekiel, who was a good Jewish man, he knew his Torah, and so when he mentioned the word toavah, abomination, he was alluding directly to Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, which condemns homosexuality. So I think Ezekiel was indirectly referring to the sin of homosexuality. Well, how about when people say, well, you know, it's these men of Sodom, they didn't want to have sex with them. They just wanted to hang out with them, get acquainted with. They just wanted to know them because it's translated as to get acquainted with most of the times of the Bible. Well, let me tell you, it's bad interpretation to try to find the definition of the word just by percentage. Okay, you know, well, most of the times it's, it's, it's defined this way, so it must be defined that way here. That's bad interpretation. That's bad um, a way to translate. The way that you find a, a definition for a word is by looking at it and by reading it in context. And in context, we find this word appears another time. Um, and, and also before, uh, we do see in Genesis that it is used to, ref, uh, to, to mean to have sex with, just like in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam, he knew his wife. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Okay, I mean, I don't think that Eve got, got pregnant by just kind of hanging out with Adam and playing, playing Scrabble. Uh, you know, they were sexually intimate. So it, right there we find that Yada does mean to have sex with. And in context, in verse 8, we find where Lot says, No, don't have sex, don't do this wicked thing, but here, take my daughter's who have not known a man? Could it be possible that his daughters, who were, you know, I, I would say young, young adults, that they have never met a man before? I mean, that could be true, maybe if they're homeschooled, I don't know, but, you know, <laughs> most likely they, you know, did know a man. Uh, and as we find out later in verse 14, they were actually engaged to men. So they actually knew in the sense of they met men before they were acquainted with men. But what, what was the point here that Lot was trying to make? 
they never had sex with men and that they were virgins. So in context, we find that yada does mean to have sex with. And in addition, uh, we find that um, in Judges 19, which is a parallel passage with Genesis 19, Judges 19, where we find a Levite's concubine is raped by the men of Gibeah from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, there they were obviously raped. So obviously, it, it even said there that they, want, they wanted to know the visitor and to have sex with them. Well, that argument that says, well, Lot was going against ancient Near Eastern cultural norms. Does that hold any water? Well, if you look at it, unfortunately, it doesn't. Because if Lot was going against ancient Near Eastern cultural norms, then shouldn't Lot have been the one that was punished? But Lot wasn't the one that was punished. It was the men of Sodom. Um, then the argument with, uh, about having sex with angels. Uh, the men of Sodom did not know that the men were angels because it says um, in Genesis 19.5, it says, where are the men who came out to you tonight? And it, said, it did, doesn't say, where are the angels um, that came to you tonight? Um, and in addition, I think that passage out of Jude, technically and literally in the Greek, it, it shouldn't so much be translated as strange flesh, but it should be translated as other flesh, meaning they were going after other flesh, uh, the other gender that they shouldn't be going after. Um, so ultimately, I think the meaning of Genesis 19, at the core, I don't think that this is necessarily a good proof text to say Genesis 19 proves that homosexuality is a sin. Ultimately, I think the reason why Genesis 19 was written was to show that God was justified in destroying Sodom. And God was justified in destroying Sodom because they were so sinful and that they were guilty of homosexuality. They were guilty of gang rape. They were guilty of inhospitality, all these different sins. And therefore, God was justified in destroying Sodom. Let's move on to the next two passages, Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, which goes like this. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. So those who hold to revisionist view say, well, you know, this passage, especially, you know, they say in context... Uh, the verse right before that is talking about sacrificing your child to Molech. So it's talking about idol worship. So what's being condemned here is idol worship. During that time, it's very common for men to prostitute themselves as male, uh, male temple prostitutes uh, in, in the worship of the different idols and uh, kind of part of their fertility rites. So uh, people say, so what is being condemned here in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 is temple prostitution. So the argument goes like this. Homosexual sex as we know of it today, the loving monogamous consensual sex, is really okay and God blesses that, but not temple prostitution between two men. That is what is being condemned here. Another argument says, well, that word abomination, it doesn't refer to immorality. It refers to uncleanness. Uncleanness. Uh, the Bible says that the eagle and the lobster is an abomination. Did you know that? How many of you guys have heard that before? The, the lobster and the eagle is an abomination. So, you know, we all love lobster and, and shellfish, you know, and we don't think it's an abomination anymore. Um, our country symbol is the bald eagle, but according to the Old Testament, that's an abomination. We don't believe that anymore, so why in the world would we believe that homosexuality is an abomination? Another argument is looking at these three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, which is called the Holiness Code. And they say, you know, that just doesn't apply to us anymore because there's a lot of things that are mentioned in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 that we do not hold to, such as sex with a menstruating woman in 1818. In 2018, mating different animals, according to the Holiness Code, that is an abomination. Mixing seed, if you mix seed, that is not, uh, that's condemned. Uh, how many of you guys are wearing clothes with mixed fabric, right? You know, either uh, cotton and synthetics, well, according to Leviticus, that is a sin. Uh, guys, did you, any of you shave this morning? Well, 
that's going against the law of Leviticus. Um, how about tattoos? If you have a tattoo, well, we're Christians, so we don't have tattoos. <laughs> so, you know, these things, people just say, come on, we don't hold to any of these. We don't believe this anymore. So why would we believe that homosexuality is a sin? Well, let me respond to those kind of in this order, first starting out with that assertion that Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 is referring to temple prostitution. One big weakness of that argument is that there is a specific word that the Hebrews use for temple prostitute, and it's the Hebrew word kedeshim. Kedeshim is from the root word um, in Hebrew for holy or kadosh, uh, so it's kind of like sarcasm saying, um, oh, those holy ones. And that's the term for the temple prostitutes, male temple prostitutes, the, the, the word for female pr- prostitutes, temple prostitutes, kedeshot. Uh, but kedeshim is the, is the word specifically that is used within the Torah to refer to temple prostitutes. And the writer of Leviticus Uh, Moses did not use that word because if he was referring and condemning temple prostitution, he would have used that word. And besides, if that assertion, you know, that saying uh, gay sex, homosexual sex as we know of it today, that's loving, monogamous, consensual, it's really okay, but just don't do it in the temple or in idol worship. Uh, We need to, if that assertion is true, we need to apply that to everything else in context that comes up in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, such as adultery. So let's apply that same principle to adultery. Adultery, it's really okay as we know of it today. You know, just do it in a loving way. Just don't do it when you're worshiping an idol. Okay, how about this one? Bestiality. It's really okay. Just do it in a loving, consensual way. I'm not sure how you would do that, but you know, just uh, but don't do that when you're worshiping Molech or sacrificing your children. Some of you guys that might be parents, you know, you might sometimes want to sacrifice your child, uh, but you know, you know, according to this argument, this assertion, you're sacrificing your children. It's really okay. Just do it in a loving way. Don't do it though, sacrificing your child to Molech. I mean, as you can see, that assertion just does not hold water. If we're going to apply it to this one verse, we would have to apply it to the other uh, passages as well. The other um, argument that the assertion that's made talking about abomination that says toava, well, that doesn't you know refer to immorality. It just refers to uncleanness. Well, unfortunately, it does refer to immorality. Proverbs six, Proverbs twenty-eight, it says this: There are six things the Lord hates: seven that are an abomination, toava, haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, false witness, and dissension. I don't think any of us would argue that this is just uncleanness. We don't think that that's immoral anymore. We would say all of these are immoral. So toavah does refer to immorality. In addition, how, what do, how do we respond to, you know, when people say, well, you know, the lobster and the eagle, it's, the Bible says it's an abomination. This is where knowing a little bit of Hebrew helps. The word that's used to refer to uh, the lobster and the eagle it's a different Hebrew word, sheketz. And sheketz um, is, when you, when you look at the two words, toava is a weightier, more serious, more immoral action, whereas sheketz is often used more or less uh, referring to uncleanness. So it's a different word, so we can't be comparing apples and Oranges, And then the argument goes, well, the holiness code, we don't refer to those things. And unfortunately, again, those are bad analogies, like sex with a menstruating woman. And the reason why it's bad analogies is because we need to compare the penalty. The penalty. What's the penalty for having sex with a menstruating woman in the Torah? Anyone know? If you were doing your um, devotions... Out of Leviticus this morning, Leviticus 15, 24, the penalty for having sex with a menstruating woman is being unclean for seven days. What's the penalty for homosexuality? 
according to these passages. Death, or they would say stoning, right? So one is stoning, one is being unclean for seven days. A little bit of a difference. How about what's the penalty for mixing seed? Throw out the crop. What's the penalty for mixing fabric? Throw out your garment. What's the penalty uh, for um, cutting your sideburns? Growing it out. How about um, anyone know what is the penalty for um, touching or eating a lobster? Being unclean till evening. So that could be worth it. You know, eat it at night, you know, dinner time, you know, just a few hours of being unclean, you know. So uh, really, you know, we're looking at, you know, being unclean for, you know, till evening or a few days compared to death. Big difference here. But of course, I know that the argument then will go, well, why don't we then just stone gays and lesbians? Why is the death penalty, why does that not still stand? Well, hear me out. I'm going to say something really radical. I believe the death penalty still stands, but not just for homosexuality. I believe the death penalty still stands for all sin. Because if the death penalty does not still stand, why in the world did we need a perfect man to come to earth, the Messiah, who died for us and took the penalty on his back? The penalty for sin is still death. And that is why today we still need a Savior. That's the message. That yes, we all deserve death. Every person that ever lived deserved death. And that's why we need a Messiah. We need a Messiah to take the penalty of death on our back so that we might live. Anyone out there that's grateful for that? Grateful that we have a Savior who died for us? So you know what? The message of Scripture, the message of the Gospel is radical. It is radical, but it's also about a radical love that comes from our loving God. So um, these are bad analogies. Um, And also within the, the holiness code, you know, people always like to quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, right? Anyone know, you know, what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? Anyone know? Leviticus 19, which is right here. So if we're going to throw out the holiness code, we might as well throw out love your neighbor as yourself. But I don't think anyone, anyone would, um, who holds to that revisionist view will go that far. Um, I'm going to throw up a little bit of Hebrew here. Um, and I'm always careful to do this because uh, one of my biblical languages professors always told us, um, biblical languages, um, it's kind of like underwear. It's good for support, but it's not good to show off. Um, so... The only reason why I'm doing this and, and talking about the biblical languages is because often it's being misused, and so I, I kind of want to just show how it can be properly used. But the reason why I'm showing this, again, is not to show off, but to, uh, to show you one really important thing, and, and I think it, was just, it impacted me immensely. This is Leviticus 18.19. Uh, you shall not uh, lie with a man as uh, you lie with a woman, Isha. And then it says, it is a toavah, an abomination, okay? Those of you that might know Hebrew or or even foreign languages, this is a pronoun. And what I want to note is that this last pronoun, it is not masculine singular, meaning it doesn't say he is an abomination. It also doesn't say, it's not masculine plural, doesn't say they are an abomination. But it says, it is an abomination. So those people that somehow enjoy going to the gay pride parades and, you know, holding up those signs, you know, you are abomination. Turn or burn. 
they're preaching heresy. Because it's not that you are an abomination, it's what? It's it. It's our sin. It's our action that is an abomination. And so though, you know, we always don't necessarily like to, and, and I'm, I don't suggest you to use abomination often when you're talking to your unbelieving friends because it has a lot, you know, it, it, it sounds very, um, you know, judgmental. But know that, you know, Scripture, it's talking about our sin. It's talking about our actions. But we don't see here where God is calling us or even these people who are committing these acts as abomination, but he's calling them an abomination. So let's move on. Um, I don't know how many of you guys knew this or not, but David and Jonathan, they were lovers. Did you know that? According to the revisionist view, uh, there's all these passages, you know, their love was more wonderful than that of women. So they must have been lovers. Jonathan and David, they became one spirit. I mean, come on, the two, they became one. They had to have loved. I mean, they were um, lovers. Jonathan took off his robe, gave it to David. They kissed and they wept. Anyone hear this before? Jonathan and David, they were lovers. And and also people go on to say Ruth and Naomi were lovers. Um, So, yeah. How do we respond to David and Jonathan? Well, does the love of two men, does it have to be sexual? I mean, do, do we not live in a hypersexualized world, you know, where it's like a guy can't even tell another guy, you know, love you, or, you know, love you, man. Um, but it's, you know, does the love of two people even have to be sexual? You know, in our day and age, when we talk about the greatest love, we think about an intimate kind of love between a, a husband and a wife or, or in an intimate relationship. But what does the Bible say? What is the most intimate relationship? Intimate love. Yeah, laying down your life. The, the way God loves us. In, in Greek, agape. Agape love, that's the greatest love, unconditional love, but there's no sexual sense in that because there's a specific word for the more sexual love, which is eros, uh, but we don't find that. So, uh, you know, the love of two men, that doesn't have to be sexual. And besides, isn't the greatest love, you know, I would like to say that there's something that I love greater than that of women, or most men should be able to say that because that should be our love for God or God's love for us. Uh, So God's love is more wonderful than that of women. Does that have to be sexual? Well, where, where people say, David and Jonathan, they became one. That can be a significant one to talk about. But let me know what it doesn't say. It does not say that they became one flesh. Big difference. Rather, it says they became one soul. They became one soul. And there's only one time in, in, in the Old Testament where we find that construction, those two words, nefesh for soul and kasar for being bound together, those two words uh, in the same sentence, and that's in Genesis 44. Genesis 44, where we have a Joseph who's kind of, uh, uh, how do we say, you know, he knows that it's his brothers and he's pretending that, that you know, he's someone else. You know, that whole passage and, and you, know, you know, planting the, the, the golden goblets in, in his younger brother's sack and stuff. And so Judah says, you know, you can't take Benjamin. Why? Because my father's soul is knit together with Benjamin. So does that mean that Jacob and Benjamin had sex? No, it just means that Jacob dearly loved his son. Um, and the writer of First and Second Samuel was pretty raw and, and honest and open. And I think if Jonathan David did have sex, he would have written about that. But we don't find that. We don't find that Jonathan David, they lie together, they knew each other, none of that. Um, in addition, if you just know a little bit about the Bible and a little bit about King David, you would realize that King David, his issue was not men. It was women, and too many women, right? I mean, if any, we could say David was pretty much a raging hetero, right? I mean, he was, he just 
wanted women. I mean, you know, even to the point when he was like really, really old, they put this young lady, you know, to, to lie with him, you know, dirty old man. And, you know, just so it's just like he was just raging hetero. I mean, his issue was not men, but it was women, you know, because if he was on that roof on that fateful evening looking down and saw Bathsheba bathing, I mean, if, if he was gay, I don't think he would, you know, say, oh, I want to be with her. I mean, maybe he would say, man, who's her decorator? Or I love her robe, you know. But he wouldn't say, you know, I want to go and be with her. So David's issue was not homosexuality, but he, it was heterosexuality. Uh, in addition, you know, both David and Jonathan, they had wives, they had children. Jonathan had a child, Mephibosheth, uh, that we hear about. So um, it's really hard uh, for people to say that they were gay of anything, you know, and this would be a huge stretch, they would be bisexual, and that's a whole nother, you know, can of worms that we're not even going to touch on um, this afternoon. Let's go on to the next kind of uh, theme, and that's talking about slavery, because often people who hold to uh, the revisionist view, they say, you know, well, the Bible condones slavery, and we know today that slavery is totally wrong. Uh, and so if the Bible has been wrong about slavery and the church has been wrong about slavery, well, then the Bible has, is, is probably wrong about homosexuality as well. So that's how the argument goes. Well, there's a little weakness in that, several weaknesses. First of all, the Bible never condones slavery. It never says, thou shalt have a slave. It's never a command. Um, and in addition... Slavery in the ancient world is not the same as slavery as we know of it today. Slavery as we know of it today, unfortunately, from the antebellum south, you know, where it's strictly focused upon one race, where it is lifelong, the slaves had no freedom, much different than slavery back then. Did they have that form of slavery, bad slavery? Yes, but slavery was a broader kind of, um, had a broader meaning uh, where there were some forms of kind of slavery, or the, the Greek word for slave is doulos, and it can also be translated as servant or bondservant. Uh, certain slaves in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they actually did have freedoms. They could get an education, they could buy themselves out of slavery. It wasn't focused just upon one race. Um, some slaves uh, could have families. They could uh, get an education. So, you know, we see, uh, it's, we can't, it's apples and oranges. It was, slavery back then was kind of uh, ancient form of welfare or the ancient form of bankruptcy, you know, or to take care of bankruptcy back then. In addition, actually, the Bible is critical against slave trade. In Exodus 21, verse 16, it says this, if anyone, uh, many translations say kidnaps, but I think it's, it's more accurately translated as steals, because when we think of kidnap, what do we think of? You know, taking a child and holding them ransom and, and asking for money. Well, it's literally, if anyone steals another man and either sells him or still has him when he is caught, must be put to death. So the death penalty for slave trade is death. Can you imagine if we actually got that translation right 400 years ago? we probably would have changed history in the Western world. Um, also, in 1 Timothy 1, uh, Paul condemns their slave traders as well. Uh, so the Bible does not condone uh, slavery as we know of it today. Let's move on to the New Testament. Um, often the argument will go, uh, well, you know, Jesus did not make a big deal about homosexuality. If he didn't make a big deal, why are we making such a big deal out of it? Um, or sometimes people even will have these tracks. will say, this is what Jesus said about homosexuality. And underneath that is, is a whole blank page. Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. So, you know, why are we, if Jesus did not see it as a big deal, why are we making such a big deal out of it? Well, there's a big weakness in that argument. Why? Guess what else Jesus was silent about? Several things, such as bestiality, incest, sacrificing your child to Molech. Jesus was silent on those things. In addition, silence is never a good argument for or against unless you have something else to back it up. And I think we actually have something else backing it up. Uh, why? Early Judaism never questioned the immorality of homosexuality. Hellenistic Jews during that time, none of them 
believed that homosexuality wasn't a sin. They all knew that it was a sin. And yet, if Jesus thought that it wasn't a sin, I think he would have certainly spoke out against it. Why? Because Jesus had no qualms about speaking against things that were clearly taught but weren't correct, such as the Sabbath. Uh, so I think silence is in our favor. In addition, Jesus, though, may, who may not have specifically talked about homosexuality, he did talk about sexuality. And he reaffirms biblical sexuality in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19, reaffirming the prerequisite of having a husband and wife in marriage for sex, coming from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Jesus also had a high view of sexuality when he, he, he actually looks at lust as being equivalent to adultery. And so he didn't loosen um, sexual laws, but he actually tightened them up. Um, going on, Jesus teaches on eunuchs. This is very common in the metropolitan community church. Well, pe- people say, well, this passage in Matthew 19, which says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Revisionist say, uh, view says that eunuchs are born that way. Uh, according to Jesus, many eunuchs were gay. Uh, so Jesus here is saying that gay men are born gay, or born, people are born gay. The weakness with that is um, nowhere in all of that literature during that time uh, is the Greek word for eunuch or eunuchos equated to homosexuality. Uh, and so, I mean, nowhere in all of, uh, in extra-biblical literature is it equated to that, and so it would be really a stretch to use that here. In addition, this passage, remember we have to read things in context, Matthew 19, it actually emphasizes celibacy. It actually emphasizes singleness. So if, and this would be a great stretch, that Jesus was talking about homosexuality here, he would be calling to the gays and lesbians to live lives of celibacy and singleness. Um, Let's now move on to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And also Jesus affirms here, actually in the the early part of the chapter, affirming man-woman marriage uh, in the previous passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, Because of this, God handed them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Um, The revisionist view focuses on that word unnatural, which is the Greek prepositional phrase, parafusin, contrary to nature. And they say what is being talked here by Paul is not condemning homosexuality for being unnatural, but what Paul is condemning here is if a person goes against their natural inclinations, meaning uh, if a man who is heterosexual goes against his natural heterosexual inclination and has homosexual sex. And on the flip side, a homosexual man going against his natural inclinations and has heterosexual sex. Okay, I mean, you might think, what in the world? This interpretation is extremely common in, uh, uh, in non-evangelical uh, Christian literature uh, put out by Boswell um, and, um, and, and other liberal um, theologians. So, the traditional view, how do we respond to that? Well, unfortunately, reading it in context, uh, where it says that they will be inflamed with lust for one another, to me, when you say that men are inflamed with lust with one another, that somehow doesn't really define heterosexual men for me. I don't, I don't know about you, uh, but it just doesn't seem to kind of um, explain that for me. Um, so that's one weakness, but also um, that Greek uh, prepositional phrase here, parafusin, um, is actually used by other authors, such as Plato, Philo, Josephus, and they specifically were referring to homosexuality. And I think Paul, who was very well read, probably was, were familiar with that, and uh, was pulling that uh, to specifically refer to homosexuality. Okay, and this is the last kind of group of passages that we're going to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. 
these mention two words in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, it just mentions the one word. Um, and people who hold to a revisionist view say, well, you know, these are two words that we don't really know what they mean. Malakoi uh, literally in Greek means soft or the soft ones. And then arsenikoitai is a word that we don't find in any of the literature during Paul's time. And so most likely Paul created a word. So most likely uh, people who hold a revisionist view believe that Paul was really talking about pedophilia um, or pederasty and not homosexuality per se, because during the Greco-Roman period, it was common for an adult man to have a boy uh, that he would have sexual relations with. The weakness with that is, as we look at where Paul might have come up with this word, arsenikoitai, is he was going back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And most biblical, uh, the New Testament writers, they were very familiar with the Septuagint. This is the kind of uh, abbreviation for the Septuagint. And he went back to Leviticus 18.22. Remember, we just mentioned that one passage. And he was pulling two words, the one word, in the Greek for male or arsane, and the Greek word for bed or lying down. And he put those two two words together, not only to refer to homosexuality, but to reaffirm what is being taught and being condemned in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. And besides, if Paul wanted to condemn pedophilia, there is a specific word for that in the Greek, and it's pederastes. But Paul didn't use that. Uh, So kind of just to finish, again, you know, I want you to see that as we study this deeper and clearly, that there is clarity on this, but do not see this as something that we're going to use to debate with others, uh, but to show that you know, God's word is true, that the church has not been wrong in interpreting it correctly, because ultimately the focus needs to be on the gospel. Focus needs to be on the good news. And what is the good news? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And list 10 sins, two of those being homosexuality. But often we kind of forget about verse 11 that comes right after. And verse 11 is where we get the good news, which says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. That is the good news, that such were some of all of us, but we were washed, sanctified, and justified. And that is the message that we need to cling to, and that is the message that we need to proclaim. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you, Father, that we have good news to tell others. We thank you for Jesus, that though we all deserve death, even for little sins, whether it's just lying or cheating or gossiping or lust, Father, we know that we deserve death, but because of your immense, unconditional love for us, you sent your Son, the Messiah, who died for us. Thank you, Father, that because of the finished work on the cross that we don't have to pay that penalty. Help us to proclaim that message. We praise you, we thank you, and we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.